Let us pray again. Father, I am desperate for Your help as a sinful yet redeemed man who is dying preaching to dying people. Help me make clear Your purposes revealed in Your holy written text. And don't leave us to that. But allow Your Holy Spirit to cause our hearts to welcome that which we hear and see. In Jesus' name, Amen. Roughly 3,400 years ago, a people called Israel who were enslaved by the Egyptians were delivered. But to say it more biblically clear, God delivered the people of Israel miraculously. As we contemplate this Exodus, this second book in the Bible this morning, have you experienced your own individual Exodus? Has that same God opened up the Red Sea and delivered you out of darkness into light? And you'll say, yes. Now you're in the desert. You have not arrived into Canaan over the Jordan. That'll come at death and then the consummation at the second coming of Christ and the resurrection of your body. But, having been delivered, are you continuing to trust in this great miraculous God of the ten plagues? and of opening the Red Sea and drowning your enemies in it. Find hope in this real historical event that happened 3,400 years ago. Now, remember, we are in the midst of a series on biblical history. So what I want to do, I want to take the last 16 weeks and re-preach them in a nutshell. Where have we been that leads us up to the second book now of the Bible. We have seen in Genesis chapter 1, quote, So God created man in His own image. In the image of God He created him. Male and female He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And we have seen that the reason God created everything and then humanity in His own image was so that as He's going to say in the book of Numbers that the earth would be filled with the glory, the spectacular beauty of the Lord. 
The image of God was meant not mainly to show the superiority of humans over animals, but to show the glory of God and His supremacy over man. We were created to reflect the glory of God. Humanity being made in His image bears the imprint of the infinitely higher being. And thus, the only way to live for the purpose of our creation is dependently in a heart of childlike trust as a finite creature to the infinite, eternal Creator. And that's what glorifies Him. Then we saw in Genesis 3 and how the Apostle Paul interprets it in Romans that just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death came through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. For all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. We have seen that every one of us human beings except one born in the lineage of Adam are born in sin. Which means we, by our nature, seek to glorify ourselves and not God. We are bent on self-reliance instead of God-reliance. It's the essence of the nature that my children are born in. And out of that root is all the actions of sin flow. Since the fall of Adam, the nature of man, apart from the renewing work of the Holy Spirit, has been and is to spurn the supremacy and the beauty and the glory of God. Paul said it this way in the book of Romans, For although they knew God, we humans, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they, we, became futile in our thinking, and our foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. But then we saw, even from Genesis 3, right after the fall, God's commitment to redeem the world. His commitment to reclaim for Himself a fallen creation. And as human history, redemptive history unfolded, we have already seen Him start to take steps to do that. And the first step He took is that He called one man, Abraham, and made him astonishing promises. Quote, I will bless you and make your name great, Abraham, so that you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. 
And I will establish My covenant between Me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. That was about 3,700 or 800 years ago. And something amazing transpired between God and Abraham. And that is, Abraham took him at his word. He believed that promise of the Creator. And then God justified. Abraham, over the years we see in the book of Genesis, that faith, that reliance, that you said it, God, that's my hope. That's where I put all my marbles, that's where I bank my life, my security, my hope for happiness in what you have promised. And that trust or faith so developed that down the road, Abraham, when God said, go sacrifice your son Isaac, who does not have children yet, the very one whom I have promised you I will give you children, plunge a knife into him and kill him. Abraham didn't hesitate. Because he knew God will not break His promise. Even if He has me kill my son Isaac, He must therefore raise him from the dead. Because He will have offspring. We saw, because of that thing there, called faith, God justified him. Meaning, He acquitted Abraham, a sinful man, born of Adam, acquitted him of all sin and guilt. And placed him perfectly righteous somehow, in perfect standing with Himself. Thus, we see God's energies and purposes for this man Abraham are totally for his welfare and his wrath has been removed. Just wrath. And then we saw the New Testament picks up on this faith of this man, Abraham, and makes it the model of how a human being gets their sins forgiven forever and gets made right with God in that age, the next age, or our age, or any age to come. Abraham is the perfect model for faith, which is the means of being forgiven and justified. So that we know that now, if we bank our hope on the promises that God has made, then we are forgiven of our sins. We are justified. If we look to Him for our security. Now and for all eternity. For our true happiness, we are justified by that faith. We stand clean and pure. And all the gifts that flow out of that wonderful biblical word, justification, being set right with God and forgiven of sins, all the gifts like Persevering faith or persevering sanctification, this molding thing he does 
in our lives as a loving Father. And final glorification and the resurrection of the body. All of that and everything in between was purchased by Jesus Christ on the cross once and for all. Jesus Christ purchased Abraham's redemption. His justification. His forgiveness of sins. Even though Abraham lived almost 2,000 years before Jesus came to earth. And Jesus purchased Joe LeMay's redemption. Even though I was not born until 2,000 years after the cross of Christ. We now know on this side of the cross that it is Jesus, the eternal Son, becoming truly human. And thus, our banking our hope in the promises is directly related to that person clearly and explicitly. Abraham didn't know him. Didn't know about him. But his faith was still the same faith we have. It's saving. He did not understand how could God forgive my sins and still remain just. God to remain just and not unjust in doing so. He didn't see why. He just trusted that mystery to God's hands, evidently. And now that mystery in the coming of Christ has been unfolded. There you go, 16 weeks. Here's the big question now. See the timeline. Let's do that first. If I had the board, you got creation, we have Noah. After that, we're going to put Abraham in here. It's roughly 17, 1800 B.C. We know that. 1,800 years later, the cross. We're way over here now. Here's the big question as we go through biblical history. After the covenant with Abraham, what we see is that for almost 2,000 years, God is directly concerned in dealing with this one little group of people called Israel. Why? Why did God wait almost 2,000 years to send Christ to die for the sins of the world? Why, for almost 2,000 years, did God limit His redeeming actions to this one small little group of people called Israel. The way the New Testament answers that question is because that long history of Israel was necessary. It was necessary to have it and then have it recorded and have it as long as it was so that when the fullness of time came, the fullness of time that now it's ripe to send my son, there would have been enough history of God's dealing with His chosen people, Israel, 
to write a book so that when Christ comes and the mysteries of how so much of His actions with Israel could have been done, it's revealed in Christ and the positive reinforcements of what faith is and who God is as God's unfolding His character and His nature in what we call the Old Testament and examples of unbelief, rebellion, hardness of heart, and God having to judge Israel again and again. That this could be written and recorded so now when it's time for the message of God, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, to go out to every people group all over the earth, they go with a book. And that history, recorded in what we call the Old Testament, that book will make it plain, much more clear when you talk about the cross, of much more easily attainable or enable us to get the meaning of the incarnation of Jesus Christ becoming a man. To get what He means by His substitutionary, sacrificial atonement. Why? Because we have the law. We have a book of occultic sacrificial system. All with Christ in view. So when Christ comes, the message isn't in a a, a vacuum of nothingness. There is massive theological in historical context so that we would understand why it is by faith alone and not by works of the law. He has given us a massive book that we call the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. And that's why in the New Testament, the apostles are constantly interpreting and unfolding the message of Christ from it. They see so much of the events and the historical happenings of God's dealing with Israel as types and as examples that help us follow the way of salvation. For instance, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, listen closely, now these things, he was referring to what happened after the Exodus in the wilderness period. Now these things happened. How come they happened back then? To him it was 1,400 years at that point. To us it's 2,400. Now these things happened to them. Why? As an example, but that they were written down for our, that's us, Christian, Gentile, and Jew, Christians' instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. In Romans 15.4 it says, For whatever was written in the former days, referring to the Old Testament text, was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Hebrew text, what we call the Old Testament, we might have hope. And so, here's an example. Here's Paul teaching through writing in the book of Romans. Listen to what he does. Romans 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law, in the Old Testament, under Moses, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Who's that? The Jews. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may become accountable to God. 
when he's giving Israel the law. He took this one little people. He has also, when he's doing so, the entire world in every people group, in every ethnicity, in every culture in view when he is doing it. Let's know that then. As we read through the Old Testament stories and works and acts of God, Always have also in the back of your mind this question. What is it that God had in mind in doing that contextually with Israel? How did He have me, us, Christians in mind also down the road when He is doing it? That's the question as we read the Old Testament that we should constantly have in our mind. Because God had it in his mind. So, this morning, the exodus, the exit out of slavery from Israel. Now remember, just because I shouldn't assume this, so I just do take a moment. When you open up your Bible, the first five books are Genesis, then Exodus, then Leviticus, then Numbers, and then Deuteronomy. Those are called the five books of Moses, which were delivered to and through Moses after this exodus. In Hebrew, you call it the Torah. If you hear a, a Jewish person talk about the Torah, if you take it in its most narrow form, they mean those five books. In Greek, it's come over down through, we call it the Pentateuch, these five books of Moses, distinct from some historical books and from poetry books and from the prophets. So, Exodus. Let's backtrack with a story that hopefully should be fairly familiar. God calls Abraham, makes him a promise he's going to become the father of a multitude of nations, and he's going to have children through his son Isaac. Abraham has Isaac. And Isaac is the son of promise, not another son named Ishmael. Isaac has twins, two sons. The first that comes out, Esau, then Jacob. Esau's supposed to get the blessing. God, to make it clear that it's according to my election, chooses Jacob. This Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel, has twelve sons. And thus those twelve sons become the head of the twelve tribes of Israel. End of Genesis, you have the Joseph story. We see that Jacob, that is Israel, with seventy of them now, end up in Egypt. Over the next four hundred Years, listen to God's purpose and patience. Over the next 400 years, those 70 multiply and multiply to probably over a million people. Then another Pharaoh, king of Egypt, comes along. And these foreigners, this clan of Israelis, Israel, is so big, he gets kind of frightened. And thus, he enslaves them and treats them brutally. Then we hear those people, Israel, of the twelve tribes, begin to cry out to the God of their father, Abraham, Isaac, 
in Jacob. And that's when God responds and sends Moses and Aaron to deliver them out of slavery into the land He promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so, here's my real narrow focus for the rest of our time this morning. As we contemplate God's working, this great historical event of the Exodus, this is what I really want us to focus on. Why did God do that? In other words, what was God's motive or motivation to call Moses to deliver the people through the ten plagues and ultimately, miraculously, through opening up the Red Sea and letting His people go through and drowning the Egyptian army behind Him. Why? In other words, why God? What moved you? But again, yes, this sermon is about God. All of God's acts are ultimately about God. There are three motives that I want to bring up that I think are clear in Scripture of why. And when we look at these three motives, they're not merely one, okay, and then parallel to that two, and then parallel to that three. And who knows how those three motives connect? Oh no. They are foundationally one, and then because of that, flowing out of that is Two, second motive. Out of that is this third motive. Or think about it like you would a tree. A tree has roots where the life is coming, where it sucks its moisture and its nutrients in the roots. And out of the roots come a trunk. And out of the trunk come branches. But there's only one tree. There's a unity there. There's only one God. What are these three motives working in God of why He delivered Israel so miraculously in the way he did from out of Egypt. The root, here's the outline of the verse. What's the root of the tree of God? It is what it has always been so far as you see. It has been, here's my motive, God says, I intend to glorify my name. Listen to Exodus chapter 9, verse 16. This is why God intended to have the plagues unleashed on Egypt. Exodus 9, 16. But for this purpose, He's speaking to Pharaoh, for this purpose, God speaks through His servants, I have raised you up, you hard-hearted Pharaoh in order to show My power so that My name may be proclaimed throughout all the earth. That's His first foundational motive. Out of those roots flow the trunk. That is, in the trunk. Why did You deliver them? Is because I, God, am committed to keep My promises. He led the people of Israel out of slavery from Egypt 
because he promised Abraham that he would let and cause and bring his descendants into the land of Canaan. And they weren't in there. So he was keeping his promise. And then out of those, or that root of God's commitment to keep his promises, comes his action, which his people, Israel, experience as his love. Now, I'm going to know how to say that. I'm going to, honey, I'm going to repeat myself five times, maybe. She'll tell me, you can't say it over. I know. That flow, that flow of motivation, I find so crucial to understanding this Bible. So much so that I would say to understand God's act, not just in the Exodus, this is working throughout the whole Bible. You could put, why the cross? Here it is. You say, because He loves Israel, He delivered Him. He loves you. Yes, but what do you mean? From where does that love flow? It's so crucial that to understand the progression here is to understand the unifying theme, the unity of the Bible. If you just ah, who knows who cares about the root, trunk, branches, or what comes first, you might flip the tree upside down and say, "Well, I think the foundation. God loves me." And you may, so I may ask, what do you mean by that? And you may give blatantly unbiblical answers. If we flip it upside down, ultimately, and history keeps bearing it out, we well-meaning people will pervert the gospel of Christ. How many times have you heard teaching or sermons that appeal to people... God loves you. Meaning, the reason, the foundation of His movement to save you, He's beckoning you, is because you are so valuable. You can't help it. And not realizing, you just turned everything upside down. You have just constructed a worldview that won't fit the Bible. You have just put humanity at the center of the universe and you have put humanity at the center of God's universe. No wonder most of the Bible doesn't make sense to you. Because we're trying to shove in our preconceptions of what He must have done and it just doesn't fit all over the place. But instead, how many times, oh, if we would hear more and more sermons and clarity of teaching that the foundational motive of God in everything, the exodus of Israel, your salvation, was the motivation for Him to glorify Himself. And why it's so sad for us, for our well-being, is that that root is the sustaining hope to experience the love for our souls. The tenderness, the fatherly care of the branches to us. So I repeat it one more time. God's fatherly love to us creatures who are being saved 
care. Oh, and it is real. More real than you can imagine loving your own children. That fatherly love, I ask you this question, well, why does He love you? See, that's what I'm doing here. There, it doesn't end there. There's something below that that moved Him. Oh, and it goes deep. Why? Because of the trunk. Because He promised. And He swore by Himself to Abraham. He promised to love many. And that means He cannot not do it. It's not rooted in you. But then you ask, why did He promise? See, that's not the end. You can go deep. Why did He make the promise to Abraham? And the umpteen other promises in Scripture. Why did He commit Himself to these promises? Because of the root of His very nature that is so infinitely and gloriously contented in Himself. He is by nature absolutely never bored, fully and eternally filled with contentment in the Son. As the Father has perfectly been gawking at, loving, being filled with the beauty and delight that He is in Himself in the image of His Son from all eternity and the Son in the image of the Father. Thus, that is so marvelous that He doesn't create to get something He doesn't have. He creates in order to overflow with that eternal, perfect, infinite, unbounded, omnipotent happiness outward in creation. And He could never thank God, move, act, do anything without that extension of His glory being the foundational motive. Because if He did, He would turn away from worshiping Himself and He would be sinful. That's the foundation. Because of that root, and He will do it, He intended before creation and before the fall to save those who will fall. He intended before the foundation of the world, as the text says, Christ was slain as a lamb from before the foundation of the world. Why? To glorify His name in saving many. Read Ephesians chapter 1. It's all over. And what could be better than to find yourself having come to faith in Christ and realize, as God says to you through Paul in Ephesians, here's why I did it. Unto the praise of my glory. That's why you find yourself experiencing the branches of His love. So let's see these three motives as before we close in the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 6 to 8. Here, what Moses is doing, this is after the exodus through the Red Sea, now they are stuck, so to speak, in the wilderness before entering the promised land for 40 years. At the end of those 40 years, Moses looks back on these 40 years of history that we get in the other books of Moses. The rest of Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. He looks back and he says, starting with verse 6, For you are a people 
holy to the Lord, Israel. Holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you, listen carefully, has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord said His love, oh, His love, the branches on you and chose you. No. For you were the fewest of all peoples. Well, then why? But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the promise, the oath that He swore to your fathers. That the, that's the reason that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Notice that again. Verse 8 mentions the branches and the trunk. The branches, see it? Why? He gives a reason. Because, here's God's motive, I love you. In other words, I have a special focused attention on your will. Fair. He promised to do good for Israel. Because he had their best interest at heart. He's bringing them out of slavery into the promised land. That's why. Secondly, also in verse 8, notice he says, quote, He, God, is keeping his promise that he made or swore to your fathers. What promise is that? You flip back to the book of Genesis a few hundred years before in Genesis 15, verses 13 to 14. Listen to the promise. Know for certain, Abraham, that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be slaves there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. He promised. And so, we go 400 years down the road, and God one day calls Moses, and He's going to deliver His people. Why? Because He's committed to keep His promise. Why? Because I love you. Why do you love us? Because you're the children of Abraham and I made him a promise. Those two motives are the reason why he did it. But they're not the only two. Foundationally, there's a deeper motive. Listen to how the prophet Isaiah speaks about what moves you, God. In Isaiah 43.7, God speaks through Isaiah saying, I created Israel for my glory. In Isaiah 43, verse 21, he says, I formed this people Israel for myself that they might declare my praise. That through them would come, wow, you're awesome. That's what the word glory means. It's reflecting, radiating outward. 
through them about the reality of His being. Isaiah 46 verse 13 says, I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, who is my glory. And Isaiah 60 verse 21 finally, Your people, God says to Isaiah, Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the works of my hands. Why? That I, Yahweh, God, might be glorified. So Israel exists and is being delivered most basically, most foundationally, for the display of God's glory. Both that Israel, they may see it, know it, respond to it, and say, the essence of righteousness, wow, about God, and also, ultimately, that not only Israel, the whole world would say, wow, about God. Turn to Exodus chapter 10. Start reading verses 1 and 2, Exodus 10. Here God states His purpose very clearly that it is to be glorified by Israel in what He will do in the exodus from Egypt. Starting with verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson, ad infinitum, how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. Why, God? Because I want people to keep doing a Seder year in and year out. To keep celebrating the Passover and keep remembering the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yahweh delivered us out of slavery miraculously, not only with five plagues, but with ten. And don't stop telling it through the generations. Why did you do it, God? Why did you do it so miraculously? Because I want Israel to continue to remember and never forget my glory in delivering them. But not only was the exodus for Israel's benefit to remember, it was also for Egypt and the Egyptians to get and to be stunned by the God of Israel. In Exodus chapter 14, God leads the people of Israel. He knows exactly what He's doing. He leads them, running away essentially. Pharaoh and his army is going to chase them. And God leads them to a dead end so that they're trapped. It wasn't an accident. He did it on purpose. Verse 3, Exodus 14 says, Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. 
And I will, here's God speaking, and then I, God, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And thus he will pursue them. And I, God, will get glory over Pharaoh and over all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh, the God of Israel. Then again in verse 18 there, he says, And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. So, not only was God's intention to extend His glory so that Israel would be so impacted with it, but also the Egyptians, but not only that, ultimately so that all the world, all the people's groups throughout the ages would know and hear about it. God's glory. Exodus chapter 9, verses 15 to 16 says, For by now, listen to this, this is God who's very purposeful and He is sovereign. For by now, speaking to Pharaoh, I could have put my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. God's very clear. He could have in one fell swoop wiped out Pharaoh and all Egypt. He didn't want to do it that way. He wanted ten plagues. He wanted what God did to be so stunning. Pick up verse 16. But for this purpose, Pharaoh, I allowed you to live. I raised you up to harden your heart so to, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So this historical event of the Exodus, it was not done in a corner. It was public. And it took a while. And it was stunning. And it was for the whole earth to know about it. It was done for the whole world to see. And if you just jump 40 years after, remember that little woman named Rahab, the prostitute? After God now brings Israel over the Jordan to possess the land, there's a problem with this city called Jericho. And there's a little prostitute woman there who wanted to. Hebrews, the book, the New Testament book of Hebrews, says she had faith, trust, something about the God of Israel that caused her to help the spies of Israel deal with Jericho. How did she come to the place where she knew about it? Listen to what she says in Joshua chapter 2 to the spies. This is Rahab. I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. That's how she got saved. 
God's purpose was that His glory extended in the way He delivered Israel would go before them into Canaan and save this woman and open the doors to the promised land. And here we stand almost yeah, 3,400 years later still talking about the glory of what God did in the Exodus. And the God and the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we have come to adore and to experience by His Spirit, is the same God who did that act we're talking about today. And that God not only can turn the Nile to blood, not only can open the Red Sea, if we today sit here loving what you're hearing, it's a sign you love Him. It's a sign that you trust this same God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we can clearly talk about our own exodus to which that historical reality can become and is meant to become a marvelous metaphor. For He delivered me out of darkness, out of slavery to sin, into Christ, Canaan now. You can see even though I am delivered out of darkness into light, sin remains. And the ultimate Canaan of the resurrection is still not yet. That I, like Israel, will have test after test after test in my wilderness time called from today to when I hit the coffin. And this is the same God who with my finances, this relationship, this sickness, this pain, this is the same God who has made promises to see me through to the end. This is the God who can bring water out of a rock He can do it for you this week. That water out of a rock might be a miracle in your body, your finances, your battle over your sin. It might be a miracle that changes absolutely nothing about your outward situation, but changes your heart to be a Caleb into Joshua, where you rest your hope and your trust in the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This is the God whether we are Israel back then or we are the new Israel spiritually as a Christian, whether Jew or Gentile, come into Him. As you lay in bed and put your 10,000 struggles with God, 
with your situation, in your fighting the fight of faith, know this one thing. Is Christ my deliverer from sin? In other words, have I, am I receiving the branches of His love? I mean deep, personal, not general. Oh, you happen to be in the room too? I guess I love you. No. The love that He has put on all those whom He has chosen from before the foundation of the world. You see that your faith is real. And that means I'm one of Him. He, before I was born, purposed to give me this eternal exodus from His wrath. He loves me infinitely because of the trunk. It's not rooted in me. He promised that He would do this. And He will. And He will do me to the end. And not only... The reason He promised was before the creation of anything. Not only did He have me, His chosen, very personally in mind, so that He would make the promise to Himself that when I was born, at whatever age that was, He would deliver me into Christ. But He did that for the sheer unbounded joy that He has in glorifying His name, the root. And that's where God's loving, sovereign hand that speaks Romans 8.28 to you for all things, Everything works together because God's working for good to those who love Him and have been called according to His purpose. Oh, Father, may we, may we taste the beauty May we be awed by the historical outworkings of Your eternal purpose in the Exodus. May we rejoice and see more clearly what You mean in Holy Scripture thousands of times about You moving for the purpose of extending Your glory. And may those words, because they will make more and more sense, Go deeper and deeper into our hearts and say, wow, that's where my confidence and my experience of tender, caring love from You is birthed and sustained and assured forever. Help us not leave this moment, Father, in our 
next few minutes as we pour out our hearts in awe, in wonder, in glory at the great God, Yahweh of the Exodus, of the great God and Savior of our souls, the Father of Jesus Christ. Amen. I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord.